the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Over the years, readers around the world have come to regard today's guest, Karen Casey, as a trusted companion on the recovery journey. In 1982, Karen's book, Each Day a New Beginning, defined a genre as the first daily meditation book for women in alcoholism recovery. Today, 40 years later, and with more than two dozen books to her credit, Karen is still writing, taking one day at a time, and connecting with groups all over the world. Karen joins us to talk about her life's work and to celebrate the 40th anniversary edition of Each Day a New Beginning. Welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I feel really honored, Joan, to be uh, a part of of your circle. Thank you. And Karen, it's an honor for me to have you here today because for four decades, you have been supporting people with their recovery journey. And you know, you, you've really made a difference in the lives of so many people around the world. How did you get started doing this type of work? Tell us a little bit about your backstory. Okay, Joan, I'm happy to fill in um, the, the listeners. You know, my own journey was uh, one of struggle for a long time. Um, I took my first drink of alcohol at age 13, uh, which really, when you sit in the rooms of recovery isn't all that young. You find that lots of people have started at that age as well. And um, But I had been chronically depressed as a kid. I had been sexually abused by a distant family relative. And I, um, I was just feeling lost all the time. And I didn't feel the connection within my family that I think uh, a normal child wants to feel. And so um, I was at a family gathering, a big family uh, wedding party, and um, lo and behold, there was whiskey and Coke on the table, and I mixed my first drink at age 13. And I realized that it changed how everything looked in the world around me. And, um, and so that simply became something I turned to for uh, many years. Um, you know, you, you hit a lot of bumps in the road in one's life, and I certainly hit my share of bumps in the road. But alcohol was what I turned to for many years until May 24th, 1976, when I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And I was one of the lucky ones um, because that first meeting really changed my perspective on what was possible for my life. And I have remained sober uh, ever since. I, I never struggled the way a lot of people struggle. Um, but, you know, I, I think that people often say, why do you keep going to AA after 46 years? And those of us in the rooms um, who have continued to go know that what happens for us in a meeting is that constant reminder that we have um, this blessed life now. We have a program for living, 
and we are able to show up for others and to show them the way. You know, when I think I got sober here in Minneapolis, where I am again now, and had I gone to that first meeting in 1976 in hopes of finding a room full of people and nobody was there, I wouldn't be sitting here today talking to you, Joan. So we feel, those of us in the room, feel a commitment to continue going. So, you know, I've had ups and downs throughout these 46 years, certainly, but uh, the ups have been far greater than the downs. So I, even though now I'm 83, uh, I intend to still um, continue with this commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous, and for that matter, to Alvanon, too. I, <clears throat> I don't know how many of the listeners are, are all that familiar with the connection between Al-Anon and AA, but I personally feel as though most of us in Alcoholics Anonymous could probably profit from going to Al-Anon, too, because of our constant familiarity with codependency and being around others who draw our attention away from the journey that maybe we need to be more focused on. Karen, when you were describing how you got started at age 13, and you said that you liked the way you felt after you had that first drink, I recently watched the Diane Sawyer special with Matthew Perry, who starred in Friends, and he described something similar when he first started around the same age. He said that after he had that drink, he had said to himself, this is what it must feel like to feel normal. And do you think that is a, a common feeling that a lot of people have when they first drink, that, th that they're not feeling normal, but in that altered state, then they're feeling more like everyone else? I do believe that that's absolutely, and I have heard Matthew share that idea before. Uh, and I think that probably any one of us, uh, and now there are millions of us, of course, <laughs> who have found help through Alcoholics Anonymous uh, or other 12-step programs. But, you know, it is, you suddenly do think, oh, my gosh, this is maybe how the rest of the world feels. And it's such um, a sense of relief. Um, and that's, of course, what makes it so seductive, mm -hmm. you know, from age 13 until I got sober at age 36. I was seduced again and again and again by how it helped to change my mood. And I always knew that uh, taking a drink of alcohol would change however I was feeling at the moment. And I, I became like so much, so many of us, a, a daily drinker. And uh, yeah. my drink of choice was Jack Daniels. And um, I certainly had that sitting on my kitchen counter for many, many years. When did you realize you had a problem? How, how quickly did alcoholism take hold of your life? You know, I didn't know I had a problem, even clear up until I went to that first AA meeting, which maybe sounds kind of crazy because it had so taken over my life. But, um, but you become so accustomed to how alcohol makes you feel. And for me, at least, I can't speak for other alcoholics, but for me, you know, I was a high-functioning alcoholic, actually. <clears throat> In my first marriage, which ended in divorce, we were both alcoholics. And um, I was an elementary teacher, and I was, um, you know, I, I struggled uh, to, to feel better, and alcohol made me feel better. But uh, it wasn't really until I was, he left, he left for, um, uh, uh, he was a, had serial affairs, like so often happens with alcoholics, because he was an alcoholic too. He left for somebody else. <clears throat> and I was suddenly faced with, oh my God, what do I do with my life now? So I started graduate school, and it was, and I ended up earning a PhD uh, in, uh, from the University of Minnesota. But it wasn't until I started started to write my dissertation that I thought, you know, I, I really can't probably do this. And it was then that I thought something needs to change. And it was a whole series of some things that then led me into that first meeting that I went into. And 
I really, I didn't go into that first meeting thinking that my actual problem was alcohol. I went into that first meeting because the counselor suggested it, and that's the only reason I went. I wanted to uh, comply, <clears throat> and I walked into that room, and I don't know, your listeners might think, oh, this sounds crazy, but I walked into that room, and I looked around, and I had, prior to that, been um, sitting on lots of bar stools while I was in graduate school, uh, always looking for that perfect man who I figured was going to change my life and make everything wonderful again. I walked into that first AABU, and I looked around, Joan, and I thought, oh, my God, I should have come here a long time ago. <laughs> Look at this room. It's more than half filled with good-looking men. And it was a room of about 200 people. And I, I thought, I, you know, I didn't even stop and think, oh, my gosh, I do have a problem with alcohol. I just stopped and looked around and thought, oh, my gosh, I feel different here. There's something here that feels like I've never felt before. I know that I want to come back. And part of it, I wanted to come back because it was full of good-looking men. <laughs> but I also wanted to come back because I was so um, moved by how it felt. Karen, what do you think that feeling was? Do you think it was a feeling of acceptance or was it a feeling That's of support? Exactly that was exactly it, acceptance. You hit the nail on the head. There, people were hugging each other. People were smiling. People, you could just feel that everybody there was being welcomed by everybody else who was there. And I had never felt that feeling except one other time before. And that was in 1974 when I walked into my first Al-Anon meeting. And that also was because it was suggested by a counselor, because I kept going from one um, unhealthy relationship to another. And a counselor said she didn't recognize my own alcoholism. She recognized that I kept going from one alcoholic to another. And she said, you need to go to Al-Anon. And I walked into a meeting here in Minneapolis again, and I thought, oh, my goodness. Um, I felt at home, even though I knew not a soul there. And so there is something quite incredible that happens to you when you walk into a gathering like that, where everybody says, we get you, we understand you, we will help you on the way. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was not the kind of feeling I grew up with in my family. Do you think that I, support, Karen, is crucial to staying sober, you know, do you think a lot of people, they, they, you know, they, they relapse because they try to go it alone? I absolutely, I, that's what I personally believe. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I, I can't, as I said, I can't speak for every alcoholic, but, but I am a committed um, and firm believer that if we want to stay sober, we have to go where the support is. And for me, that support has been in 12-step rooms. Yeah. That's where I know that I will get whatever help I need on a daily basis. You said you started drinking because you felt like an outsider isolated, and then your drinking made you feel more like an outsider and isolated. And, and I think that that's probably what happens to so many people. They don't feel like they fit in. And without that support, I can't imagine how difficult it must be to try to, to stay sober and to heal. Well, you know, I, I think that when you are under the influence of alcohol, you can pretend as though you fit in. You can hide from the fact that you are feeling disconnected. And I think that that's the part of the uh, influence of the alcohol. But when, you, when I went into that first Al-Anon meeting and followed up by that meeting on May 24th, 1976 in Alcoholics Anonymous, my world turned upside down. It was as though here is the, the actual solution. Now, I still had my struggles, not to stay sober, but I still ended up having some struggles with my, uh, with the comfort level. I, I felt that others had a connection with a higher power 
that I seemed to not be able to to maintain. You know, um, and you know, I know that people probably listening who uh, have gone to meetings, 12-step meetings, maybe get there. Uh, not all people will get this, but I would go to a meeting and I could feel the connection because it just seemed to sizzle in the room. And then I would leave and I would so often feel alone again, but I knew the whole desire to drink was gone. I never, it mysterious, after having been, a daily drinker and a, a daily drinker of copious amounts of Jack Daniels. It still is unbelievable to me all these decades later that I left and the desire to take another drink was simply gone. Um, but I would leave a meeting and I would very soon begin to feel that sense of disconnection again. And that's really the key what led me to sitting in a beat-up old recliner and writing, because it was that connection as um, with the writing that I could feel the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And that's truly what, what then changed the, the role I seem to have in life. It felt as though I was being called. I mean, this right. may sound totally crazy to some people, but it felt as though I was being called to do something more. You were talking a moment ago about tapping into a higher power. How important do you think that feeling and and that belief now was in your recovery? I think it was crucial. I think it's absolutely um, the difference between um, making it and not making it. And for me, as as I said, you know, I would go to a meeting and because I think of all of the other people uh, in the small groups that, because we always break into small groups for more intimate discussions, I would I would really kind of trade on the connection that other people seem to have, and I would I would feel um, their connection, and uh, but then I would leave, and I wouldn't feel it, and I think that that's the downfall for so many people. For me, uh, I don't know why I never turned to taking another drink. I don't know why I never relapsed. But, you know, while I had been working on my doctorate, I discovered, Joan, that writing was such um, that I could write. (laughs) The writing brought me such comfort that that I didn't struggle every time there was something almost mystical that would happen for me when I would sit down to write. It was as though I had a constant companion. Mm-hmm. And so I would come home from meetings and feel that sense of ennui. And I would sit down. I had a, an old beat-up brown recliner that actually my father-in-law had given me. And I would sit down in that recliner with not any real thought of what I was going to write. I was just sitting in that recliner, and it felt as though God joined me in that moment, and I began to write what I felt and heard. And that, in fact, is what became each day a new beginning. I didn't ever start out to write a book for other women, and and it's almost laughable is the wrong word, but it's just kind of a, a stunning thing to me that that book now has been held by four million other women. You know, how did that happen? Well, it happened because there was an intention um, that God was going to join me on that journey. And it feels as though God has been joining me on that journey ever since. I sit down, and I'm not sure what happens, and you probably recognize this from the kind of interesting life you have led to that you suddenly know that you are headed in a direction that maybe you had not even intended to go in, but there you are, and you know it's the right direction. You know that that there had been an intention for you to go in that direction, and that feels exactly how my life has been. You know, it was like I look back at my childhood, and though it was, 
sad in so many ways. I, it wasn't because my family was a bad family. They simply didn't know how to show up in any other way. And I think that's what's so true in most families. And so I sought help through alcohol. And I, I think that every part of my journey was as it needed to be to bring me to where I am today, having this conversation with you, Joan. You know, I, I don't look back on my life and think, oh my gosh, why did that happen? Mm -hmm. I mean, how stupid of me. You know, I, I don't do that. It's like that God was part, every part of every step of the journey. And here I sit at 83 uh, thinking, well, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going to go next, but I know it's going to be interesting because that's how my life has turned out. Yeah, you know, and I couldn't agree more with everything you just said because everything in my life, the good and the bad, really prepared me for the moment that I'm living right now because I too would not be doing the work I'm doing had I not been through so many challenges in my life. And, and it really is a beautiful thing when you let God in and you and you feel that presence. And, you know, I like to tell people God has a sense of humor. Look what he's doing with me. But, you know, I, I, I can't agree more with what you, you said. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that we're so lucky that we are able to see it that way, Joan, because so many people, I think, don't ever reach that place that you and I have reached. And I, 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 I'm so grateful. The book is Each Day, A New Beginning, Daily Meditation for Women, 40th Anniversary Edition. If you'd like to get more information about Karen and her work, you can visit womens-spirituality.com. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. It has really been a joy having you on the show today. Oh, thank you, Joan. I just love being a guest. And, um, and I know that we're both... Um, in fact, doing exactly what we need to do in our own journey through life. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Joining us for this week's To Your Health is Dr. John Varbro, the Chief Medical Officer at Bergen Newbridge Medical Center. Dr. Varbro is also Assistant Professor at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School and the Chief Medical Advisor to Bergen County in New Jersey, acting as Medical Director for all county public health programs. Dr. Varbro is here today to discuss detecting and treating diabetes. Welcome, Doctor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Doctor, diabetes can be a constant battle, not only for those diagnosed, but also for their loved ones, their caregivers, and healthcare providers. How prevalent is this condition? Uh, it's extraordinarily prevalent. It's one of the more prevalent uh, illnesses that we see. And, and quite frankly, the rates have been going up as as part of what we call metabolic syndrome, which is a constellation of illnesses that people have, you know, generally related to increasing obesity rates in our country, but also just in general, um, it's extraordinarily common in all age ranges, but increasing as people get older. So you mentioned obesity. What else are our risk factors? Why do you think this is happening? Well, again, I think that it's probably a combination of factors. There's a genetic predisposition, especially for the uh, adult onset. I should clarify that there's two kinds of uh, diabetes or what we call diabetes mellitus, which is sugar diabetes, uh, you may have heard it called. Um, there's the type 1, which affects uh, children, and that's actually uh, what we call an autoimmune disease. So that's something where the body uh, ends up attacking the cells that make insulin. And so that's when you hear about a child with diabetes and they have to inject themselves with insulin. 
Um, that is actually oddly not as genetically linked as the later onset version, although sometimes it's linked to people just having autoimmune diseases in their family. Adult onset is uh, type 2 diabetes mellitus where people develop resistance to insulin. So the insulin in their body is being made, but their cells don't respond to it as they normally should. And there's a bunch of different factors that add to it. Obesity being a large one and what we call the metabolic syndrome, which is a constellation of different uh, syndromes and symptoms, including diabetes, obesity, and so forth, uh, that we see and we see increasing in the population. Do you think that a way to really mitigate the damage is to just start moving? Yeah. So you're absolutely correct. Um, Increased activity has been shown to improve people's reaction to insulin. There are medications, actually. There's a medication that we use to treat uh, diabetes called metformin. Uh, Glucophage is the, um, is the brand name that has actually been shown to help prevent the onset of diabetes, although I wouldn't recommend putting people generally on a medication uh, if it's not needed. But there, there's, some, uh, there's some indications that that might help prevent it. Um, but, uh, but definitely um, increased activity. Um, and weight loss um, are helpful, but even with weight remaining the same, increased activity improves your body's um, your body's response to insulin, which would decrease the rate of uh, progressing to diabetes. And doctor, how does diabetes present? What are some of the warning signs? So it's uh, it's a very good question. There's a number of ways it can present. The classic one, you know, the one that you learn about in medical school, is that people are uh, thirsty more and they're urinating more. And the reason for that is their blood sugars are high which uh, their kidneys then try to get rid of the sugar, and it puts out sugar with that. It pulls water along with it, so people become very dehydrated. Um, and that's typically how, how the children present. In adults, you know, we typically try to screen people at primary care visits. So a lot of people initially present just because their doctor picks it up on a blood work. Um, but the typical symptoms would be stuff like, I said, the increased urination and thirst, waking up in the middle of the night to urinate, that kind of thing. The other, um, the other stuff would be if it's more progressed along, you could potentially start to see the sequelae of, of uncontrolled diabetes over time. But again, that would t- be, take a long period of time um, for that to develop, um, you know, things like um, problems with their vision and, and uh, vascular problems. But that's more long-term sequelae of having diabetes. Should we be hopeful? Can diabetes be managed successfully? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, we have patients who've had diabetes well-controlled for 40, 50 years. Um, you know, the juvenile onset patients live their whole lives and will live full lives, you know, with diabetes. Um, it, it obviously depends on, on a couple of factors. One uh, is just how severe your case is initially, and two is how well people follow the instruction. You know, some people, unfortunately, there's a, there's a little bit of luck to it. Some people, unfortunately, they do all the right stuff, and they still progress, but that's, that's the exception, not the rule. Um, it's usually more you know, people who stay up with their diet, stay up with their exercise, take their medications, follow up with their physicians uh, so that adjustments can be made, generally do pretty well. Um, as a personal uh, note on this, you know, my grandmother lived to age 100. She had diabetes from when she was 40. You know, so she followed everything and, and did all the stuff. And this was you know, some time ago now. You know, so you know, she got initially diagnosed about 70 years ago. So mm-hmm. you know, there, there wasn't all of the uh, stuff that we have now. Uh, and she still did well because you know, she was very regimented. Well, and my grandfather was the same. They put him on medication and he threw the pills away. <laughs> I have an Italian grandfather years ago and he said, I'm not taking this. He made all the lifestyle changes, changed his diet, started moving, doing everything. And he was fine. So, I mean, is that a possibility once you're on medication? If you make the changes, can you ever reverse this and get off it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There. I mean, and again, it's not a guarantee. I don't want people to sit there and hear this and go, oh, great. I'll just, I can stop the medications and I'll just do X, Y, and Z. <laughs> like my everybody's grandfather. A little different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody's a little different. But we've definitely seen that where people, um, people get more active, they lose weight, they follow their diet, and they stop needing the medication. They may, again, years later, start needing them again. Um, but, but I've seen people save it off, and it's definitely well described that that can happen. And so all the things that we've been talking about regarding treatment and management of it, are, are these the same things that would be able to prevent it? Yeah, absolutely. So again, you know, keeping weight controlled, 
staying active, exercising will help prevent the onset. It, it just in general will promote your body's response to insulin. As we mentioned earlier, it's when the body becomes less uh, or becomes more resistant to insulin is what develops the adult onset diabetes. And eventually over time, having that resistance leads to changes in the body which progress it and make the diabetes more severe and eventually burns out the body's ability to create insulin and so forth. So just making the body more uh, reactive to the insulin will prevent the onset and prevent the, the down-the-road sequelae. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. You and I have talked about these types of lifestyle changes before, and now at the end of the year, when we're thinking about moving forward, this is just another reason for us to live a more healthier lifestyle. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Your immune system is your body's first line of defense against illness. In the same way a security system protects your home, your immune system fights off viruses, harmful bacteria, infections, and parasites. A stronger immune system means less chance of getting sick. Joining us today to discuss how you can boost your immune system is Donna Galarza, a functional medical nutritionist who believes we often have the power to change our health once we understand it. Donna has been working in the medical field for more than four decades. She's the founder of Back to Basics Nutrition. Welcome, Donna. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan, for inviting me again to speak on your show. Always a pleasure. Donna, you say that we often have the power to change our health once we understand it. What do you believe we need to understand? Each person is very, very unique. And in regular medicine, you see a lot of cookie-cutter medicine, just the way it is, no one's fault. But in functional medicine, we really work hard to uncover any of the like obstacles that would inhibit a person from being their best in their health. So that's what I mean by, you know, trying to educate patients so that they are comfortable in their plan, empower them so that they know there's things they can do. People are really right for it now. You know, the whole pandemic opened up so much of how people address their health and they want to take control. So it's a wonderful time to be in this field. Donna, what are the things you believe harm an immune system and what can we do to build ours so it operates optimally? First, I would say um, believing that you're weak. You know, the brain, the central nervous system controls and regulates our immune response. Your autonomic nervous system is part of this. So this is releasing cytokines, which are inflammatory markers and hormones. And so, you know, when my patients come in, I always ask them, are you happy? And they kind of give me a little quirky look, like what that has to do with nutrition. And when I go on to explain to them the whole way that you view yourself, you feel about yourself, your mindset, your attitude, definitely helps to keep your body stronger. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't been doing it, it's good to go into situations and say, I've got this. My body is resilient because every cell in your body hears that message. You know, there's this whole psychoimmunology exploding in this country. We're really starting to expand here. And they're understanding it's just not as simple as it looks. There's a lot that goes into being strong. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, the mindfulness is important. Also, hydration, huge, huge. You know, if things cannot get inside of your cell, you don't benefit from the goodness that's in your body. That's in the way of nutrition and like supplements, nutrients. It takes a lot of energy to move things inside and outside of your cell. People don't realize that. And so I'm a big fan of electrolyte waters. I like to buy more the like natural organic type without junk in them. There's so many out there today. I would say respiration and movement, even my patients that are in wheelchairs, you have to breathe and move, even if you can only move your upper body because your heart beats, pumps your blood, your lymphatic fluid, which is a very big piece of your immune function, has no pump. So unless you move your body, you don't get lymphatic circulation. And that is a stagnation of the immune system. So that's a very, very important piece. 
I would also say gut. You know, gut health is getting very popular. Today in functional medicine, we have the ability to measure the whole gut microbiome, good and bad. And what I'm finding now, one of the biggest problems people have in their gut, in their in their, in their stool sample, if you will, is that we don't have the diversity of the population of the good probiotics. This has got a lot to do with there's a lot of antibiotics in the food. There are pesticides that can mimic different hormones in your body. Um, sometimes food is not great, you know, too much sugar. And so we need to expand the good bacteria in the gut. And those are your what we call your commensals. So I believe that, you know, taking probiotics definitely can help a person, which one they need, individual to each. That can all be measured. If you do test your microbiome, you would know exactly which probiotics you need. Also, the foods, the foods that we eat. We never want to eat things that are too sluggish on us or hard to digest, give us constipation, diarrhea. That's taking too much energy from your functional body. So foods that you eat, if you pay attention, what is working great for you? What makes you feel strong and powerful? Those are your power foods. They're predicting a pretty challenging cold and flu season. I've seen reports. What type of things should we be doing to navigate what might be coming up ahead for all of us? Well, some of it, um, the basics, you know, the good hand washing, things like that, of course, can always go a long way. Me personally, if I'm going to see someone and they tell me they're sick, I'm not going to have that uh, encounter because I try to avoid as much as I can. Um, exercise would be very important, getting fresh air, moving around. We know that people that exercise, and it doesn't have to be to the athlete level, have a higher natural killer cells, but they also need a lot of antioxidants. So all my athlete patients, I have on antioxidants. And there are, um, you know, the, the reason they think this RSV is so powerful is because the kids were sequestered for quite a long time. And, you know, these germs are smart. They, they believe that this new RSV strain has a little bit of flu in it and a, a amped up uh, virus here, respiratory virus, that's really giving um, a punch to small children. So this is scary. You know, I mean, I see patients, I belong to holistic moms groups, where, you know, they're saying, well, we don't want medication. And I'm trying to really encourage them. If you're three months old, can't breathe, go to the emergency room, call your doctor, because with the RSV, you don't necessarily have a lot of time to hang out, mm -hmm. you know, and it's very, very scary, this level of illness. But I think being as mindful as you can with your sleep, good quality sleep, stress reduction, eating good foods for your body, Taking proper nutrients, each person's different of what they will require. When I test people in functional medicine, we look inside the cell and outside of the cell. There are patients who really don't need any supplementation at all. Their body just works great. They have a good gene pool. They detox well, and they really don't have to take extra stuff. And then you have other patients who eat all organic and clean, and their body requires a lot of nutrients. So that is very individualized. I'm not for cookie cutter medicine. I don't believe everybody takes the same because it's just simply not true. Mm -hmm. But if you wanted to look at like my list of like what would be good on supplements, it would be zinc, not over zinc, not overdone. Uh, vitamin C, D, there's quercetin. I had mentioned the probiotic. I like something called liposomal glutathione. It's a detox for your liver. We all have glutathione. It just gives it a little bump Lysine, reishi mushrooms, lion's mane, these are all mushrooms, make mushroom soup if you like it, astragalus, bone broth, collagen, that should be in everyone's toolbox. And each person, children, I mean, I see over age two, you would do children's products and reduced, obviously reduced the amounts and the types. And you have to be careful what you're going to do with supplements because you're introducing you know, something else into your body. So it has to be well thought through. And what I love about what you're saying, Donna, is that you give us back our power. We have all felt so powerless for the past few years, but you're giving us the tools, like you said, to live a happy, healthy, empowered life. And, and one of the things I do want to know before we run out of time, we may be talking about adults, but you mentioned children. 
we're raising children that are sicker than ever before, and we need to give them the tools. What are your thoughts on what we should be doing for our children? Well, you know, when school went back in session, I mean, I'm born in the 50s, so it's a very different um, how we how we lived. I saw, like, if I was in charge of the school system, even through the winter, as long as it was above, it was 30 degrees or above, I would have bundled those kids up and had them walk around that school building a couple of times every day. Today, children do not get gym every day. There's very little movement unless they're doing some extracurricular. Of course, all that was cut during COVID. I think the basic fresh air, sunshine, movement, um, you know, they kind of push gym down like it's not important. I really feel that it's crucial to have children move every day for the same reason I said for the adult. You have to move your lymphatic fluid. It makes them get some excess energy out. So I think that's very important, you know, for the kids. Um, I'm not a huge fan of excessive antibiotics. And now you're seeing the medical system is taking a step back on this one, realizing that, you know what, for every ear infection, for every what appears to be like a cold, we don't need an antibiotic. And often the um, pediatricians are writing the scripts, but telling the parent, hold off a couple of days, let the body try to heal itself because it will it will heal itself but of course you don't want something very bad to happen in that process of the body trying to heal you have to keep a very very close eye when you have a sick child and donna where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your work so my website is functionalmedicalnutrition.com you can find me there on my website And Donna, in about 30 seconds or less, what would you like to leave our listeners with regarding keeping their immune system strong? The most important thing is take control of your health. We have to get away from people go and just get medication from doctor. You know, you you need to first believe you are strong. You have to believe in your mind and your body that this, this design of this human body is amazing and that all the bells and whistles and healing properties we need are there. So trust the system, you know, a little bit and watch yourself. If you, you or your child becomes severely ill, of course, that's when we call the doctor. Make your food as best it can be. Buy the best quality food you can buy. It's unfortunate what happened with that, that we don't have good quality unless you buy organic. Take your supplements, get outside, breathe, stretch, meditate have some spirituality because at the end of the day, that's really what's going to carry you in this crazy world of, you know, what's going on with all these pandemics. Donna, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Joan. Thanks again for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. What effect does adversity have on the spirit? Will adversity strengthen or weaken you? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati. I'm a musician, sound practitioner, and the creator of The Sound Life, an app for relaxation and meditation through sound and music. If you're going through a difficult time right now, you're not alone. Everyone experiences adversity. It does not matter what hardships you endure, but how you come through them. What tools do you have at your disposal to calm your mind and lighten your mood? How can you focus your attention on positive outcomes? Where can you go to find the solutions? You are your best resource. The cure for suffering and misadventure is within you. The tool is meditation. The path is inward. Sound meditation is the easiest way to cultivate strength through adversity by emptying your mind of ruminating thoughts so you can focus on a solution. You don't have to learn how to meditate. You only have to set aside time each day to breathe, listen, and relax letting the music soothe your passion so you can listen to the wisdom of your mind. I'm Allison Ayati, and I believe everyone can cultivate peace and happiness, even in trying times. Try sound meditation. To learn more, go to livingthesoundlife.com. Sound meditation is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. 
As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today is Emanuela Fasoni, a certified health and life coach who has helped people experience breakthroughs in their health and lives. She's the author of the book, Healing Through Nature's Medicine. Emanuela is here today to discuss synthetic hormones. Welcome, Emanuela. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for having me, Joan. I'm happy to be here. So, Emmanuel, before we start talking about the different types of hormones, I want to just give our listeners a little bit of a basic understanding about how our hormones become imbalanced in the first place. Well, that's unfortunately something that I went through in my own health. So you see, endocrine glands are the third line of defense against disease in our body, and they control the hormonal system. So when the first and second line of defenses in our body, which are the uh, digestive and the liver systems, get congested and are no longer able to properly detoxify, which is the liver's main responsibility, then the endocrine glands take over the job of detoxification. So when the liver and the digestive tract can no longer process toxins, they wind up in the blood. So too frequently, when we use the endocrine glands for elimination of toxins, it will, we wind up with atrophy and degeneration of the thyroid, pituitary glands, and the adrenal glands. And this creates a huge mess in the hormonal system. Are there negative side effects of using synthetic hormones? Yes. And I actually went through some of them myself. I was on my own living experiment. So it has been shown in research studies that the risks to taking hormones, they go everywhere from higher risk of developing blood clots, stroke, gallbladder disease, heart disease, breast cancer, mood swings, weight gain, bloating, spotting, headaches, acne, and the list goes on and on. For me, I was really, mood swings were my thing, bloating, weight gain, body aches was also another thing that I was experiencing. If it's important for us to balance our hormones and synthetic hormones come with some of the side effects that you just mentioned, what can we do? How can we bring our hormones back into balance? That's a great question. So the solution is to get the intestinal tract and the liver to work properly as elimination channels. So the burden will be taken off the endocrine system and eventually the hormonal system will go back into balance. So lifestyle changes like food habits, exercise, stress management, plus whole food supplements, digestive supplements, as well as antioxidants are necessarily are necessary to help with the natural healing process in the body. So there really is a lot we can do. Absolutely. Naturally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the important message here because when we have these types of issues, we feel helpless, you know, but there, there is a lot that we can do to take our power back. Yes, there is. And that's my message for every woman or man who's considering bioidentical hormones. You can bring balance back to your hormones naturally. You can really, as I tell everyone, give the body what it needs. It knows what to do. It just needs the right environment. Emanuela, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about this topic or Emanuela and her work, you can visit embodyvitality.net. Or as always, to hear more from Emanuela, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Emanuela. Fear is one of the most powerful forces in life. It affects the decisions we make and the actions we take. 
And while the primary role of fear is to keep us safe, it often becomes the obstacle that stands between us and our dreams and goals. Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. You can allow fear to stop you from taking action, or you can face, challenge, and overcome it. There are rational fears, the ones that are based in reality, such as encountering a bear while on a hike in the woods. And there are irrational fears that keep us stuck. These are the stories we tell ourselves about outcomes we believe will happen. With no factual basis, they usually begin in childhood and remain with us until something is changed. These can be labeled destructive fears. While it's not always easy to recognize our fears and how they keep us stuck, Here are a few clues that experts say may help us determine if our life is guided by fear rather than joyful freedom. You see only the downside. You avoid anything new or unknown. You stay small. You are indecisive. How can you move past the fear? First, become aware of what scares you and how you respond. Keep a journal, and when you recognize a fear, jot it down. Then write down how you react when fears arise. Keep track of anything that seems significant. Learning about your fears can help you transform them. Once you are aware of your thoughts and responses, you can employ a few strategies for change. Use your imagination for good. Instead of letting your thoughts take you down a dark hole, imagine yourself in the situation with a positive outcome. Take a time out. Don't react immediately and give yourself some time and space for analysis. Clear your mind by focusing on your breath, taking a walk, or participating in any activity that calms you down. Then, when your mind is clearer, analyze the situation with a new perspective. Talk to a friend or advisor. Gaining insight from someone on the outside can help you see a situation in a different light. Remember, fear is nothing more than false evidence appearing real. You can allow fear to stop you from taking action, or you can face, challenge, and overcome it. The choice is yours. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more empowering tips and strategies, visit joanherman.com. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.